Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario is blasting the government for unfairly treating internationally trained nurses and making them work as PSWs instead, how can the government expedite this process and assist them during the latest staff crisis? Ontario has launched a new Crown Agency to promote skilled trade services. Labour Minister Monty McNaughton will join us to talk about that. And the Bank of Canada has made an announcement. There will be no change in rates. What are the implications? Well, we'll get into that as well. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We want to talk about the health sector, which has been front and center, of course, because of COVID and the pandemic and the struggles that have gone on in primary care hospitals and, and frankly, also in long-term care facilities. Amazingly, nearly two full years into the COVID-19 pandemic, the Canadian Federation of Nurses says some nurses are still struggling to get things like personal protective equipment they need to shield themselves and their patients from the virus. Karen Rebo has details. Federation President Linda Salas has been warning about the need for more effective PPE for health workers since the early days of the pandemic in March of 2020. She says nurses are now working amid the most transmissible variant of the virus yet. And to ease staffing shortages, some nurses are being deployed while COVID positive themselves. And yet, Salas tells the Canadian press the scarcity of special fit-tested respirator masks in some parts of the health system has become even more dangerous. She notes an even vaccine Clinics. Members of the public often seem better outfitted with the proper protective equipment than the health workers. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. This is only one of the number of problems that, uh, that nurses are, are facing. Uh, to shine the light on this, and it's important that we do this, so, so pleased to welcome to the program Morgan Hofarth, who is the president of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. Morgan, thank you so very much for the time. Great to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me, Bill. We could talk about, and we will talk certainly in our time here this morning about about PPE and the access to that, about burnout, about long shifts, double shifts, uh, and staffing. Uh, but I want to put this in context. About a week and a half or so ago, uh, we did a segment about the fact that there is a nursing shortage. We know there's a shortage with a number of people in the healthcare system, but a nursing shortage, and that's critical. Uh, the province and said, well, you know what, we're going to accelerate the program so that because there are people that are internationally trained that we can bring in. And that on the surface sounded like a great idea and and maybe not the solution, but part of the solution. Now we're finding out uh, that uh, what's happening right now is they're inviting these internationally trained nurses in, but they're hiring them as personal support workers, not as nurses. What's going on here? Yeah, so there's two separate programs that have been put forward. One is uh, a bigger is a program that looks at applicants who have submitted their applications to the college being deployed to work as personal support workers in either the hospital or the long-term care sector. There's also a program that's looking at providing the supervised practice component to nurses who are internationally educated. So we know we have over 20,000 internationally educated nurse applicants who are already in Ontario. So it's not looking at attracting from different jurisdictions, attracting Mm -hmm. from different countries. These are people who already are living in Ontario, who are internationally trained and looking to become registered with the College of Nurses in Ontario as either a registered nurse or a registered practical nurse, who have just been waiting for their applications to be processed for a number of years. Okay, but let's talk about the logistics of this too. As you mentioned, uh, these people are here. Some of them have gone through training. Some of them have actually finished training, and they're waiting for positions. God knows there are positions. There's a shortage in just about every place right now. Uh, but in the program guide, the ministry states that the work, if they go and become personal care workers, will not count. They get no credit absolutely for this at all. And I, I know a number of people in, in your organization right now, Margaret, are saying, well, that's that's exploiting these people. Yeah, it's it's a difficult program. So it, um, there's a number of nurses who are here. So the process to become registered in Ontario requires, if you're internationally educated, a review from the College of Nurses. So these are people who they aren't able to work as nurses in Ontario right now because they've not completed that review with the college. Uh, so their education, their language, their ability to meet the competencies of an RN or RPN in Ontario are assessed by the college. So these are applicants who have a nursing degree or diploma from a different country who are here, who are, who have said, yes, I want to work as a nurse. And what we're saying as a province and is 
Okay, you can work as a PSW, which is not recognizing the desperate need we have for nurses and also not recognizing and respecting the skill that these internationally trained applicants bring with them. Well, it's it's demeaning, I would think. I mean, people that have gone through this training and, and you know, nursing is, is not a job. It's a, it's a vocation. It's a profession. It takes a certain kind of person to be able to do this. And you're basically saying to an awful lot of these people, uh, good for you that you did all this training. Now you get a job now. You can change diapers and do other things. Uh, for, by the way, a pittance of the money that you would make if you were a nurse. It, I, I can't understand the rationale here and how they justify something like this. It Yeah, it is. We have serious concerns about this program and how it's not it's not helping to get more people into the nursing profession. Yes, they are working in healthcare roles. Yes, it is a necessary, needed, important role, but it's not respecting the education and training that these nurses bring with them. What we want is for the college to expedite the applications of our internationally educated nurses that are already in Ontario. Which makes all kinds of sense. Uh, let's, let, there's a source here, and, and as you say, it's not as if you have to, you know, say the first, you know, come on here. They're already here, and they're already being trained. Uh, just to put this in perspective, though, Morgan, how vastly different is the training from from one country to another? From Canada and the UK, Canada and the States, Canada and, and European countries, uh, Canada and, and and South Asian countries. I mean, do they come here? To, are, are they close to qualifying here or is it just a matter of actually getting the, the OK from the, the association here from the College of Nurses? What, what's the process and, and, and how quickly could these things be expedited if they were so inclined? Yeah, so it's the education is different in every country because the education is aligned with the practice requirements and what's required to be registered in that country. The standards for nursing practice and best practice is very similar across the world. Um, so we know that we know that the way that you, you know, insert a catheter, for example, is the same in every country because it is an international standard and an international best practice. There are some intricacies of the Ontario healthcare system that internationally educated nurses would not have learned in their nursing program. Just like if I wanted to go and work in a different country, there are some, because I am trained in Ontario, there are some intricacies that I wouldn't know about their healthcare system that I would have to learn in order to be able to work there and to be registered as a nurse there. Uh, what's happening though is that it's taking a significant amount of time. I'm not talking months, like years. It's taking years, up to seven years or more to complete the application process. So that's looking at the validation of their education, is looking at the validation of their practice. There's a language um, competency that they have to meet in order to be eligible to write the registration exam here in Ontario, either the CPRNE to become an RPN or the NCLEX to become an RN. And I can understand that. I mean, like, communication and language has got to be a big part of that, but it's certainly not going to be applicable to every one of the uh, the people that are waiting right now. Why the backlog at this stage, Morgan? Is it simply they don't have the staff to be able to process these? That's a really great question. I It's unclear what's causing the backlog at the College of Nurses, what the, what's causing it to take so long to process the application for these internationally educated nurses. It's... Um, I don't believe that it needs to take as long, um, particularly now that they've committed to expedite the process. I'm not sure what took so long to expedite the process to allow these nurses to. It's, it's not saying that every single one of them will meet the requirements to be registered in Ontario. Many of them will. Many of them will meet the requirements. We already have many internationally educated nurses working here in Ontario. Um, so we know that many of them will meet the requirements. It's just that it's taking so long for them to even have the opportunity to write their exam. By the time they can write the exam, they have to go back to the country that they are registered to work in to do safe practice hours so that they can meet, fulfill that requirement of the college because it's been so long since they've worked as a nurse. And, and okay, that's an interesting twist. Uh, so somebody coming from uh, I don't it doesn't matter pick a country uh, has to go back there for their for their practical training. In other words, like an internship, so to speak. Uh, how do you do that in light of the fact that there's a travel restriction on an awful lot of countries right now because of what's going on with the pandemic? I mean, that, it's just one more thing that's going to delay this whole process. 
Yeah, it uh, thankfully the program from the from the college is allowing um, and it's supported by the government, although not at the wage that we would see um, an RN or an RPN being paid. There is a program now to allow a certain number of people, if you can find a some, like an organization and a nurse who would supervise your practice to complete that in Ontario, but that's new. Previously, if you were trained, um, for example, in India and came to Ontario and finally got to write your exam, if you didn't have recent practice experience, you would have to go back uh, to India to do 400 hours of safe to fulfill the safe practice requirement of the college. So it um, it is really difficult, particularly now with the travel restrictions. So I work in an environment who where um, we have a lot of people who work here who are internationally educated nurses. Some are working as nurses and some did come to Ontario, take the PSW program as they worked through their college registration. And many of them have had to go back to their, um, their home country in order to complete their supervised practice hours. And quite a few of them during the pandemic have gone back and because of travel restrictions have had a really difficult time getting back to Ontario, which is now their home. Yeah, I, that's that's what I say. It's just one more delay in this situation. Hey, maybe just so we can get a clearer understanding of this, Morgan, uh, do the conversion force, 400 hours, you say, of, of practical service work. How long is that going to take a, 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 an applicant to, to complete 400 hours? Months, years? What's, what's uh, 400 hours. So it would take, um, let's say you were working full time and working 40 hours a week. It would take you 10 weeks to complete your 400 hours. If you can some find people, that kind of if job, you can find give it you those sorts time. of hours. Yeah, some some people it would take less time because they would work, you know, every day to get their 400 hours done as quickly as possible. Some people it would take a bit more time because, um, you know, maybe they're unwell one day or for and that for some other reason needed to take a day off. Um, if they weren't working full time, it would take, you know, about three months. Is there a, a residency guaranteed when you come back, though, after you complete that part of the course? Uh, no. So it's not it's not guaranteed that you would be able to be registered when you come back. Um, it's not guaranteed that you you wouldn't be coming back to Ontario to a job. Because uh, I know the story I saw that was on uh, CBC, they, they talked about one particular case of Charmaine Lazo, who was uh, from the Philippines, trained in the Philippines, has also worked in Saudi Arabia. She's been here since 2019. Uh, completed the Ontario education, uh, licenses an RN and RPN, still no job. Uh, you figure there's a shortage here. Uh, why aren't they calling these people? But th there just seems to be some delay here, a, a disconnect. It's internationally educated nurses have a lot of requirements that they have to meet. So they also need to have a um, either a permanent residency or a work permit to be able to be employed in Ontario. And I know that that's been something that many of our internationally educated nurses have also struggled with is getting all of the, all of the kind of jurisdictional requirements met in order to be eligible for employment. So they might be registered, but it's also relying on work permits and permanent residency as well in order to be able to be employed. Let me ask you then, there's a problem here. There seems to be a resource that we could be using more effectively, i.e. people that are internationally trained. And, and by the way, we're talking about nursing, but I mean, you know, personal service workers, PSWs, same sort of thing is going on here. There's a shortage there as well. So what recommendation would you give uh, to the College of Nurses and, and maybe even to the ministry at this stage? How can we expedite this process and, and use this resource to try to uh, alleviate the pressure that many of your members are feeling on a daily basis going to work? Yeah, we need to expedite the processing of their applications for registration. So working through the backlog of this over 20,000 files to get them completed as soon as possible, whether that's hiring additional resources to, to be able to do that. So the college's role is regulation and also protecting, um, keeping Ontarians safe and making sure that people are safe to practice and having a shortage of nurses is not safe. So we really need these applicants to be processed as quickly as possible, um, as well as ensuring that we really are providing the opportunity to fulfill the safe practice requirement here in Ontario. So we have a start. There's a bit of a pool that's starting to build here, but we need 
to expand that program so that all 20,000 of these people, if they want to participate in that, are able to and have a preceptor or supervisor that's matched with them. But we also need the government to expedite the work permits for these individuals to allow them to be able to work in Ontario. And, and that's an important point because I know talking with your organization and, and with the RNA Association, nobody's suggesting cutting corners here. Uh, you know, we want people that are qualified to be able to look after uh, the sick and infirm and, and, and those who need it in, in primary care hospitals and other facilities. Uh, but it's it's expediting the process. And, and that's red tape. That's maybe not enough staff, whatever the case might be. So there is a role for government to play here to try to move this process along. Uh, we had the same discussion a yes, couple of days ago is. about trying to get skilled workers into this country from other parts of the country other parts of the world, rather. And it's the same process. They say, well, we're stuck. All kinds of people have done all the paperwork and all the application. They're not being processed fast enough. So the government is going to have to understand that and step up. Uh, Morgan, I'd like to stay in touch with you and your organization, uh, with Registered Nurse Association here in Ontario. Uh, please keep us posted and up to date as to what's going on here uh, so we can get a fuller understanding of what's happening here. Uh, the, the problems aren't going to go away, and there is no one solution to this. But certainly, you, I think you've outlined a number of different initiatives that the government uh, and, for instance, the College of Nurses can take to try to address this. Thank you for doing this today. Thank you for the time. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Take care. Morgan Hofarth is the president of the Registered Nurse Association of Ontario. And again, it's it's process and, and government's got to move the process along. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've talked about the housing problems here in the province of Ontario. We've talked about, uh, well, a number of different initiatives. And, you know, every time we start talking about trying to get the economy back on track and the economic recovery, uh, one of the things that comes up time and time again is a, a labor shortage, especially skilled labor shortage. And uh, I know the province is certainly cognizant of that. I mean, even the uh, couple of sessions that the, the premier had uh, with, first of all, large mayors and uh, urban mayors, and then, of course, the small town mayors, uh, they kept talking about the fact that, yeah, we could build more homes, but we just can't find the people to build them. Uh, the skilled trades are vet lacking right now. Uh, the Ontario Ministry of Labour has been attacking this and, and has some solutions to this. And uh, we're pleased to welcome uh, the Labour Minister for the Province of Ontario, uh, the Honourable Mon- Monty McNaughton, back to the program uh, to give us an update on what's happening to address this. Uh, Minister, great to have you back on the program. Hope you're doing well these days. Well, Bill, great to be back on with you and hopefully everyone's staying warm today. Uh, yeah, <laughs> welcome to Southern Ontario in the deep freeze. Let, let's talk about some of the initiatives, Minister, that you've talked about. You, you mentioned a few months ago uh, about expanding some of the programs at community colleges to attract people to skilled trades, which is a great idea. But they're taking it to the next step now. What's, uh, what's the latest twist and what's the, the ministry doing now? Well, it really is uh, all hands on deck to get more young people uh, into the skilled trades. I mean, I, I've been very clear, we, we need to stop telling uh, every young person out there uh, to go to university. There are other pathways uh, to be successful uh, in life. In fact, here in Ontario, there's more than 140 uh, different skilled trades uh, to choose from. These are uh, meaningful jobs, uh, great opportunities. Heck, we all know people in the trades making six figures with pensions uh, and benefits. So we're investing uh, $1.5 billion to get more young people uh, into the trades. Uh, And yesterday, I was proud to launch uh, Skilled Trades Ontario. It's going to be a a new agency with with new leadership to really be a one-stop shop for young people to get into the trades. How's that going to work? Well, it's a uh, small government approach. Um, We've got a team of uh, 11 people that's going to really modernize the apprenticeship uh, system. So for anyone, uh, whether you're a young person or you're looking at getting into the trades uh, later in life, uh, you can go to Skilled Trades Ontario, uh, register uh, for an apprenticeship. Uh, You can schedule uh, classes, uh, exams. Um, Under the former uh, Liberal government, uh, it took 60 days to uh, apply for an apprenticeship. We're going to get that down to uh, days for people to really speed up the process. You raised a, a, a very interesting part about this, too, about retraining, which is a, a big part of this. Uh, and we've noticed that, and I know you've seen the stats on this, Minister, that uh, that said, you know, we talked about some of these places that are reopening now since the pandemic it continues. Uh, and they're trouble, having trouble finding positions. And and I know the report that came out earlier this week said a lot of those people have found other jobs uh, and, and they've had to be retrained to do that. Uh, sometimes a better paying job in a situation like this is a lateral move sometimes and even sometimes a progressive move up the, uh, the employment ladder. Uh, how do you reach out to those people to let them know that this is available to them? 
Well, certainly one of the things that Skilled Trades Ontario uh, is going to do is uh, really market and advertise uh, the trades. Uh, my mission and, and Premier Ford has been doing the same thing, really driving home a message to uh, parents and educators like guidance counsellors that uh, careers in the trades are lucrative. You can start your own business. You can travel and work uh, anywhere uh, in Canada. Uh, so it's really important that we uh, send that message that uh, these trades are great opportunities. And if you have been impacted by the pandemic, if you've lost your job uh, or you've had your hours reduced, you know, consider picking up a career uh, in the trades. And as Premier Ford famously says, when you have a trade, you have a job uh, for life. So I encourage uh, anyone listening today, if you're interested uh, in the skilled trades, you can go to any one of our Employment Ontario uh, centres or you can go to skilledtradesontario.ca and all the information is available. I, I know talking to past ministers, this is probably going back a couple of government generations now, Minister, uh, and they, they seem to identify, okay, yeah, we need to get people into the skilled trades. But it was such a difficult process and there's so much red tape. You had to get a sponsor. You had to, you know, what union are you going to go into? Is there a potential job for you right now? It sounds as if a lot of that red tape has been eliminated. Absolutely. I mean, we've really uh, worked over the last number of months to get this right. I've been uh, at the table with uh, our union partners, uh, colleges, uh, employers like contractors and other skilled trades uh, employers, uh, really to knock down uh, any of the red tape. That's why this new uh, agency that is outside of government, I, I didn't want to bring it back into uh, the bureaucracy here uh, in the ministry. So we set up this new, really nimble group that's going to continue to knock down barriers, recruit people uh, into the trades. And it's so important for not only people to get better jobs, but for our economy. I mean, one in five jobs by 2025 here in Ontario uh, will be in the skilled trades. And uh, I've been critical of governments of all different stripes uh, in the past for constantly uh, telling young people and parents that the only way to be successful in life is to go to university. It's simply not the truth. Well, and, and, you know, it's it's not for everybody, and that's not to suggest that you should forget about your education. This is just putting the education off in a different direction. Uh, maybe, because I know you've talked to business leaders and you've talked to a number of the people that have been involved in, in the trades for quite some time, uh, maybe explain to our listeners about the need. Uh, it's not as if, okay, I can go through this program, and then i got to wait and see if I can find a job someplace. The, the need right now is urgent. And just about every one of the skilled trades I've talked to, Minister, they're saying, look, we want to start jobs yesterday and we can't get enough people. Uh, so the sooner these people can become qualified and, and, and become available for this, uh, they're going to put them to work. Absolutely. I mean, it's important to get into an apprenticeship uh, as quickly as possible. Uh, every employer out there is looking for skilled uh, workers. I mean, by 2025 uh, in Ontario, we're going to need uh, more than 300,000 uh, skilled trades workers. One of the issues uh, that we have, and again, that's why governments in the past should have addressed this, but one in three journey persons today uh, is over the age of 55. So this looming crisis that you know people have talked about in the past is actually coming to uh, fruition here uh, in the province. So we're going to continue you know, to spare no expense to continue to promote the trades. Two things that I think are going to be really game-changing here in Ontario. Uh, we're introducing the skilled trades as early as kindergarten. Obviously, you know, very uh, basic uh, introduction to the trades. But the other thing that we started uh, last September, we're sending dozens and dozens of recruiters uh, into every high school across the province to talk about the opportunities, to talk about you know, there's more than 140 different trades to choose from and just how well-paying and meaningful uh, these jobs are. Well, anybody who's tried to get some work done in the last little while can attest to this. And, and you know, we've talked in the past about the fact that since a lot of people have been stuck at home, working from home in some situations, uh, they've talked about doing home renovations, maybe some repairs that they've been putting off for a number of years. Good luck trying to find a tradesperson to do it. You know, if you need an electrician, uh, I, I know electricians that are booking three to six months in down the road now because they just they can't do the work right now. Uh, it's very frustrating for them, and it's also frustrating for the the general public that are looking for that sort of assistance. So I mean, there's a there's an incredible need and an urgent need right now to to accommodate this. Really, I guess just about in every one of the trades that you've mentioned here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I grew up in our family's uh, home hardware building center store. Grew up with uh, tradespeople, but also grew up with those customers. 
uh, coming in the store. And, you know, they had challenges back then, but it really has uh, intensified over the last uh, couple of years. The good news is for listeners out there, um, there's a lot of online uh, training uh, to begin uh, getting into the skilled trade. So uh, really it's uh, all hands on deck to uh, help modernize the skilled trade system and, and to get people uh, into the trades. How, how difficult was that and how important was that uh, to do that pivot, to, to allow people to, to go through this process, a lot of it anyway, online? I mean, we're always a little bit skittish right now about face-to-face and these sorts of things in classrooms uh, for a variety of reasons because of the pandemic and, and the variants, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but you've, you've, you've done, uh, I think, a real service to these people by simply saying, look, you can get acquainted with this, you can learn about this, and you can actually start the training for this in an online situation right now. That, that, that seems to me a great way to expedite the process. Absolutely. And, you know, it's important that government keeps up with uh, technology and, and keeps up uh, with training. I remember being in northern Ontario and seeing a whole bunch of uh, apprentices uh, in the mining industry, uh, learning using uh, virtual reality uh, equipment. So before they go underground, uh, they're they're learning virtually and and online. So there's a lot of new uh, innovations out there. We're finally bringing the trades uh, into the 21st century and really just pushing it out there to parents and to educators and young people that these should be a first career choice uh, for people. Is the uh, is the program up and running? I mean, can people access this ASAP? Yes, it is. Yep. Visit one of our uh, Employment Ontario uh, centers. Uh, you can visit uh, in person or virtually uh, or go to skilledtradesontario.ca and uh, our people will uh, certainly you know, help people get into the trades and talk about financial incentives and just all the opportunities out there. Uh, I, I've seen some of the numbers on this too, and I mean, you, know, you talk about the registration and the processing time. I think, as you mentioned, even for the processing, uh, it used to take upwards of two months, and now they're talking about doing it in a week and a half, uh, which is going to really, uh, I, I guess, expedite this process as well. Uh, great initiative. Uh, here's hoping it's going to be one of the catalysts of, of, of among others that you've talked about, Minister, uh, to try to get, first of all, get people into the trades and get them trained and get them out there and working. Uh, to do an awful lot of the work that's out there. As, as we talk about an economic recovery and we talk about the housing crisis and so many other things that are going on, uh, these people are going to be working and there's a, there's a real bright future for them. So yeah, let's, great, we'll stay in touch. I know, I know that this family. is not the end of the road for you, is it? I mean, there's a lot more uh, as, as you study the issues and talk to people in labor and unions and, of course, the, the construction and other industries as well about the needs. Yeah, there's a, you know, a lot of work still to be done, but we're making great progress. I mean, uh, under the last uh, four years of, of the former government, uh, we had an apprenticeship decline of 17,000 uh, participants, but we are building back a, a better system uh, and spreading opportunity more widely, and we're really excited about this. Minister, thanks so much for the time today. Good talking with you again. Thanks, Bill. Keep well. Take care. That's uh, Bonnie McNaughton, the Ontario Minister of Labour, with a new initiative, online initiative. Uh, and uh, you want to check that out, just go to Skilled Trades Ontario. You can Google that and get all the uh, contact information the minister was talking about. And uh, there's, there's work out there, and there's money out there to be doing that sort of thing. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. I want to bring you up to speed on something that we talked about. This is a number of years ago, and it goes all the way back to the early days of the Ford government here in the province of Ontario. Uh, you may remember one of the first things the Premier decided to do was scrap the uh, the, the program that the previous government had put in, uh, the cap-and-trade program, their environmental program. Uh, much to the chagrin of an awful lot of people that were involved in it uh, because they had invested a lot of time and a lot of money in this and, and deals were signed, contracts were signed. Uh, well, that could be coming to a head right now from a legal standpoint. And uh, to bring us up to speed on that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Fatima Saeed, a journalist with the Narwhal, who have done some incredible work and research on this. Uh, Fatima, first of all, great to have you here on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. And, look, and thank you for hanging on to this. This is a story that we were very concerned about at the time. Uh, you've, you've never let this go, and you, you've got an update on this. Uh, at the time, uh, as I say, uh, uh, the government at the time didn't seem to understand that you can't break a contract that's signed between two other people. There have to be ramifications, financial ramifications. And there's some pretty heavy hitters that were involved in this, and, and they're not letting go of this either, are they? Yeah, Bill, it, it, I don't know if you remember the, the swearing-in ceremony of the Premier Ford and, and his government, but 
literally the first thing that they announced was the cancellation of this three billion program that was designed to yep. reduce emissions across the province. And I was baffled and and I, I've been looking for answers for what exactly happened and, and how this cancellation took place ever since. Um, and as you mentioned at the top of the show, uh, there were so many companies, hundreds of companies that had signed on to this program um, willingly and uh, and out of necessity. You know, we had big giants like Enbridge and Suncor and all, all the industries that, that are the highest emitters in the province signing on to, to reduce their emissions with this program. And then you had volunteers volunteer companies, uh, small companies, small energy companies across Ontario, some international companies that wanted to do business in Ontario because they were incentivized by this greenhouse gas reduction program. Uh, And all of them just saw their uh, accounts frozen, their contracts broken overnight. I I don't want to get into the logistics too much of cap and trade. Essentially, I mean, you know, there are there are caps set in and you can buy credits, et cetera, from people that aren't polluting and the heavy polluters uh, have to buy those. So there's, there's a, a transaction, a financial transaction. Uh, and there's people that supply that money and then the people that have to pay into it. It, it may not be the best system. It's, it's not for us to judge. The fact is, is they canceled this and froze the assets of an awful lot of people that have put, well, millions and millions of dollars into this. It's a question of accountability, Bill, right? Whether or not you agree with the program, uh, governments need to be accountable and be clear in the reasoning for why they do things. And this government has never clearly stated um, their motivation and their justification for canceling the cap trade program. The one thing that we've heard time and time again is that it will save Ontarians money. But as we've seen over the year, uh, it's actually costing us more. If you think about the cost of climate change, we're p- polluting more in Ontario than we were uh, at the time cap and trade were was cancelled and, and that's going to cost us moving forward um, now we've got two lawsuits that's going to cost Ontarian taxpayers um, you know we even went to the, all the way to the Supreme Court to to challenge uh, carbon price policies from the federal government and and that surely cost Ontarian taxpayers as well so there are still a lot of question marks that uh, we're, we're waiting for the government to tell us what happened um, but they've completely avoided answering any questions about it yeah, that uh, that challenge to the uh, to the federal program cost us at least thirty million dollars. Now I'm not talking about the residents of Ontario uh, going to court and losing, uh, not, not just the initial case, but of course the appeal that they took all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, so that's coming out of our pockets as taxpayers. Uh, the other one that's coming home to roost, though, that you're writing about uh, in in the most recent piece, uh, is is the compensation for these people that uh, that were aggrieved and had their assets frozen. And I know. The, the short, long and short of it here is the ministry said, well, yeah, we have compensated people. They compensated the polluters. The, mm-hmm. the, that's the, the way I'm looking at the booking here. And the people that were losing money, uh, and including the Cope brothers and some of the other people that you talked about here, they got nothing. Uh, the, the people that were supposed to be paying because they were not adhering to the rules got compensated by this government. They, they, they got this whole thing backwards. Yeah, I think the question we should be asking ourselves is, you know, uh, the slogan Ontario is open for business uh, is a pretty broad paint, uh, a pretty broad statement to paint uh, across this province. But when you actually look at actions like this, you have to wonder, is it really open for business? Because we have businesses now that are saying that because our contracts were canceled overnight, um, we suffered great losses. The time that we invested, you know, this was a years long program in the making. Businesses were consulted. They were buying in, they were changing their internal policies uh, and, and you know, hiring people to, to try and, and match the requirements of the program. A lot of time and money was invested in, in starting this program. And then overnight, it was canceled. And, and since then, we've had two different uh, carbon pricing programs in Ontario. That doesn't exactly create a lot of certainty for businesses um, and for businesses to be reassured that this is a place where, where they can uh, carefully and efficiently and effectively operate uh, their industries and, and their practices. Uh, and that's that's the main thing. Uh, I think the government says a lot of things, but the actions say a different thing. And cap and trade is just a case study of that. Well, and in the piece uh, that you just recently did for the for the Narwhal, you talked about some of the investors uh, who have lost a ton of money on this. And I know one of them, you mentioned the Koch Brothers companies, the multi-companies, of course, down in the States. And don't forget, this was a deal between Quebec and, of course, California. Uh, so there was a lot of investments on both sides of the border here. And my understanding is they've actually filed a suit through through the NAFTA yeah. accord. Now, I know there's a new NAFTA right now, but I guess this is going to be grandfathered. 
Uh, and nobody's stopping this. I mean, this is going to go forward, and this could end up costing Ontario taxpayers an awful lot of money. Yeah, and, and this is going to take some time to go through the judicial systems bill. But, you know, if uh, Coke is claiming that they lost $30 million, uh, I don't know what they're claiming in their lawsuit in terms of the full amount that they want compensation for. And then we also have a class action, right, that is being led by a small Cambridge, Ontario energy conservation company that is also a bunch of businesses trying to recoup their losses. But they're also challenging the constitutionality um, of the cap and trade program cancellation once again. Uh, if you remember, the constitutionality was challenged uh, in 2019 uh, by uh, Greenpeace and Ecojustice yep. um, because and, and the court found that the government did not effectively consult uh, Ontarians as they should have, as is their legal obligation to do so. And, and, and they broke their constitutional right. So now businesses are, are arguing that uh, another level of constitutionality has been breached, which is that you can't just cancel a contractual agreement overnight without uh, a, a, you know, a heads up, a significant heads up for businesses yeah, to talk about this and figure this out. That's contract law 101. I mean, but I thought that there were lawyers hired by the government. I guess not. Anyway, go to the narwhal.ca to read the whole article. It's a fascinating piece. Uh, great work on this, uh, Fatima. Thank you so much for the piece, and thanks for spending some time with us today. Always appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Bill. You take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The much-anticipated uh, announcement for the Bank of Canada was uh, basically, well, it's not a non-announcement because there are implications one way or another, but there is no change in the Bank of Canada rate. And that's, in many people's minds, surprising in and of itself. So what's going on and, and what are the implications and how is this going to impact you and me? How is this going to impact economic recoveries? There's so many different facets to this that are tied to what's going to be happening to the borrowing rate. Uh, to s- settle all this down and add some clarity to this, we're pleased to welcome to the program Brian Hogman. Brian, of course, is the principal and owner of Mission 35 Mortgages. Also the author of an uh, interesting book called How to Get Mortgage-Free Really Effing Fast. Uh, the book on how to pay off your mortgage in Canada with 10 simple steps. Uh, that's one of these eye-catching titles that makes you want to pull it off the shelf. Uh, Brian, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Bill, thanks so much for having me here. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, right off the bat, were you surprised by the announcement? You know what, Bill? I never thought, you know, being a real estate investor that I am, and I, I actually borrow a lot of money, I never thought I'd be this disappointed to see rates not go up. <laughs> I was actually quite shocked. My prediction was that we would see a quarter point increase, a very small one, a 0.25. But uh, yeah, I was quite surprised that they kept it the same. I, I, I'm i in the same boat. I mean, I, just about everybody I talked to said, well, this is where it starts. They're going to do it this week. Uh, and talk. let's maybe backtrack a little bit, Brian. We'll talk about some of the pressure on the Bank of Canada right now. Uh, because I know six, eight months ago, I guess, when we were talking about our quote-unquote economic recovery, that phase of it anyway, uh, there was an assurance from the Bank of Canada that says, don't worry, we're not going to touch interest rates because we don't want to encourage the economic recovery. I don't think anybody saw inflation coming, especially not to the degree that it has. It's really changed the game, hasn't it? Oh, you're not kidding. You know what? It's uh, inflation hitting almost 5% right now. And uh, I equate inflation to like a fast moving train. Okay. When we have inflation, it is really hard to stop. And raising interest rates is one of those levers that you can use to slow it down. So, and you know, I know everybody's seen it in the housing market, especially You've probably seen yeah. it in every lot of things that you buy, but to not have it slow down now, that to me means, you know, the next interest rate meeting will be in March. It'll be in the spring. Uh, it'll be interesting. I'm very curious, a little bit unnerved to see how fast it's going to be flying over the next two months. Well, and, and this is kind of the damned if you do, damned if you don't uh, decision, I guess, that the bank had to make, isn't it, Brian? Uh, if they're yeah. going to say, yeah, we're going to leave things the way they are right now, basically the the, the subtext of the message is inflation is going to continue to be a, a you know bite you in the you-know-what uh, for the next little while, so you better be prepared <laughs> for that. Yeah, and you know what? I know I, I do not envy their position. I would not want to be making these decisions, of course, because you're right. You can't win. But uh, when you look at the numbers, a quarter point increase is very, very manageable. You know, A lot of times people think interest rate going up is a lot. But, you know, for the average person who maybe has a four or $500,000 mortgage, on a mortgage that goes up a quarter point, it means about a $60 increase in your monthly payments. Now, I know no one wants to pay 60 bucks more, but those little increases are a lot more palatable. You can swallow 60 bucks a month uh, unless inflation gets out of control, then it has to be double that. And then they decide, whoa, we're really buzzing down the track in March when we set the interest rate. Let's go up a half a point. That's a little bit more scary. 
let's talk about the implications of that then and, and the 60 bucks and, and by the way you're absolutely right you know you might say i don't want to pay an extra 60 bucks on the on the example you just used but you're paying a lot more yeah. when you go to the grocery store or the canadian tire or anything else these days too because of inflation so you, you, you're not really coming out ahead on this uh so so that's the conundrum that i guess that we as consumers are being faced with right now uh like i say you, you in the real estate business and right that's right in your wheelhouse brian Yep. What do you what do you advise people right now when you see something like this coming? I mean, you know, if somebody who's who's got a, a for instance a variable rate mortgage is looking at this and saying, "This is great, man. You know, I'm I'm paying the lowest any Canadians ever paid for mortgages. Uh, the bank's not going to do anything about it for now." Uh, but they also were very cautiously telling us with their announcement today. But there's more rates coming. There are hikes coming, and there's going to be a lot of them coming in the next little while. Uh, should uh, we we can't whistle past the graveyard in this there there may be some darker days ahead for borrowing what what would your advice be to people that are in that situation now yeah that's a great question and we get lots of calls on that and i would say you know easier said than done but don't worry because here's the here's the numbers and i'll get a little nerdy but not too nerdy sure if yeah, you yeah. were to if you were to lock into a fixed rate it is about 150 basis points that's 1.5% higher than the variable rate you're paying today so you know, some people might have a one and a half percent variable, which is my gosh, cheap money. So if you yeah. locked in, you'd be locking in at three. What that means is that the variable rate has to go up six times to equal what you'd lock in at today. Now, will it go up six times this year? Oh my gosh, I hope not. But I don't think it's likely. So the amount of money you'll save in the interim is still far better than locking in today, in my opinion. The other advice that uh, sage people like you have been giving for years too is 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 peace of mind, isn't it? Uh, and yes. if you're worried about this, and if this is keeping you up late at night, maybe you should talk about maybe locking in. It may not be the best strategy for everybody, but I guess you really have to individualize this, don't you? You do, and you know, I I totally agree. I call it sleep insurance, right? There's no sense yeah, laying yeah. awake in your bed at night. But one thing that is very interesting today, and you'll love this, Bill, because you know. Uh, a lot of times that parents' generation, the older generation, they'll end up saying, you know, on your first mortgage payment, you know, you're, you're barely paying off any principal. The good news today is with a variable rate mortgage being as low as it is, the average person with a mortgage right now in a five-year term is actually paying off over 16% of their principal in a year, in five years. So in that five-year term, that very first mortgage payment that someone goes out and gets today they're actually paying 65% of that mortgage payment is going towards the principal. So because rates are so low, we're actually in a unique time where people are building up significant equity quickly. So even if, you know, when the rate does go up, you've actually built up a pretty big buffer in equity in your home. That's good news. And, and you're right. That's a change from the way things have been for many, many years. Uh, let's talk about the impact this is going to have. And, and I know one of the reasons a lot of people, including yourself, Brian, were thinking that the rate was going to increase today uh, was because of the impact you're going to have, first of all, on inflation. And you, you've covered that. But the other is the, is the housing prices right now and, and the housing crisis that's facing and the skyrocketing prices that we've seen right across the country, which continue uh, to be a problem here. There was some thinking that look at if they raise the rates, that's going to cool the housing market. I, I'm a little skeptical that that a one shot uh, increase like this is going to have that much of an impact. What do you think about this? Yeah, Bill, you know what? I completely agree. I, I don't think the quarter point increase was going to uh, you know solve any supply issues. Was going to drop the housing prices and make it uh, make us all sing kumbaya and I'll get a I'll get a nice affordable home. But I think what it what it does is it it sort of kicks the can down the road. And my concern is because the government's been looking at investors and 25% of buyers right now are investors. They're the ones that are, you know, helping drive up the price. My concern is when you get that double whammy. So now, you know, we look into the spring, the government's done some, they're doing some deep dives right now as to what policy changes they're going to make on investors, uh, maybe making bigger down payment changes, maybe doing something else. Which, which, again, I don't think is a bad thing, even being an investor. I think it's healthy for the market. But what happens is when you get that double whammy where you get a bigger interest rate increase later because inflation's a little bit out of control and government rule change and intervention, then what happens? Then there might be that might actually be a, a tipping point three, six months down the road in Q2, Q3, where there's actually a little bit of a flattening. So what well, remains to be seen, but it could be a good thing. 
Well, exactly. And, and as you've mentioned, I know in, in, in some of the appearances you've made in, on the radio in the last little while, uh, the interest rates are only one factor in, in the housing situation right now. There's so many other things going, including supply and a number of other things like that. And, and I think we have to be cognizant of the fact that there's no one silver bullet that's going to do these things. I'm just looking at uh, some of the updates and some of the reaction, Brian. Uh, from mm-hmm. some of the other financial uh, circles right now. RBC uh, is now saying, in spite of what happened today, uh, they are still predicting three rate increases from the Bank of Canada before the end of this year and possibly another three next year. Uh, if they're right, uh, can we safely say the honeymoon is over? Yeah, that's a good... You know what? I think, uh, again, th- six interest rate increases over two years is swallowable. It doesn't sound like a lot. Or Sorry, let me put that differently. It does sound like a lot, but people have a little bit more time to acclimate to it. When you start, when they wait too long and they do bigger increases in a short period of time, that's the part to worry about. So I think I, I think we're going to see the housing market slow down. I think we're going to see Q1 right now. Oh my gosh, I, we're seeing it right now with prices going hundreds of thousand dollars over asking, more so than ever before, because there's no supply and there's a bit of that FOMO right now, that fear of missing out. Rates are going up government intervention. I better buy now. It's going to be my last chance. So I think this Q1 is going to be a like the Wild West. But I think you'll see this when the rate does eventually go up at the end of the second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter. I'm very hopeful that we'll go back to a market where we'll actually see people buying houses with conditions of financing again. So my whole team doesn't have to sweat anymore about all these cash offers. <laughs> uh, and the impact that's going to have is, is this what signal does it send to, to to investors, especially people that are investing in real estate? And you know, a lot of people have done that in the last little while. When they see a, a market like this, they figure, you know, they're, they're buying up properties if they can, you know, renting them out. And we saw that every time, you know, there's a, a for sale sign up for say, you know, condos here or whatever. Uh, we've had people that have swept in there and bought two or three of them. They don't want to live in them. They just want to rent them out because uh, they're going to get their money back and more. Uh, does Is this going to encourage them or is this going to slow that market down? Uh, it's a little bit interesting. I, I heard a great quote the other day, and it says a tree doesn't grow to a, a tree doesn't grow to touch the sky. And I think a lot of real estate investors right now, you've got good season ones that know what they're doing, and then you got ones that think, "Oh my gosh, this is going to go up forever." Right? That's the ones that concern me. I think property investors who have tried, tested, and true, good fundamentals. You buy for cash flow. You buy for a long term horizon. You're not just riding a a cryptocurrency wave. Sorry for my crypto investors out there, but you're not just riding a wave or anything like that. You've got the good fundamentals. I think investors will still purchase real estate. I still think it's a very sound investment. The concern is if you think you're getting in and flipping uh, or you're speculating or you're very over leveraged. Like if you've taken out way too much debt and the interest rate goes up, that is the investor that I think is going to be concerned and, and should start to pull off ease off the gas but the ones that are you know disciplined do it for the long term i think this is fine this is just a moment in time and and that's always been sage advice isn't it i mean if you want to get in here and get a quick hit of the sugar high uh you're (laughs) gonna get you're gonna get burned every now and then aren't you i think so yeah i think you know warren buffett always says you know it's not timing the market it's time in the market i believe that's the same with real estate i i think a lot of i think i don't think it's going to tip the scales where we're going to see a whole bunch of real estate investors go bankrupt, but I think you're going to see some people get burned. You know, I think you're going to see some people that thought the gravy train was going to run forever and they made some poor choices and are going to lose some money. So I think that will happen. What's what's this going to do to the overall economic picture stall like this? And and again, uh, just for, to remind our listeners, if you're just jumping in on this, uh, the Bank of Canada they did not raise the rates today. They're holding steady, uh, but did say there's going to be more rates hikes, more rate hikes rather down the road. Uh, is <laughs> Is this a grace period right now, Brian Bay? They're basically saying uh, it's coming. You've got a few months now to get your act together and get your, in other words, get your affairs in order uh, for this. And that's, I'm not suggesting it's it's Armageddon, uh, but you know we might have been just being a little too frivolous with our long term spending and things of this nature and our debt levels. Uh, this maybe is a is a bit of a sobering thought to say maybe we better reassess things before these increases do come. I, I think that's an excellent way to put it, Bill. I think it is because it is a flag. It's a big flag in the air that says, hey, listen, this is your third warning. Get your stuff together, like you say. Final notice. Um, <laughs> yeah, final notice or you will be evicted, right? There, there's one indication that is very interesting, and uh, it came out two weeks ago. It was called the inflationary expectations. Mm-hmm. And they what they do is they survey businesses about how much they think will be inflation over the next two, three years. 
And surprisingly, 70, well, maybe not surprisingly, 70, 80% of people thought there was going to be massive inflation. What this does is it pulls a lot of buying behavior into the present. So uh, if, and it's just like, if I was saving up for a deck and I was going to buy a deck two years from now, if I think it's going to be way more expensive two years from now, I'm going to buy it today. What this will maybe do though, instead of that flag where I think some, a rational person might say, okay, I got to get my affairs in order. The other aspect of it is it, it may create a frenzy of spending because if the inflation does continue to drive up like that, people will make buying decisions today that they were going to put off till tomorrow. Figuring it. Yeah. The, the, there could be darker days. I may as well get it done now. Yeah. So well, what so would be interesting? And, and you've already talked about the impact that could have on housing, certainly, and whether or not that's going to happen. But what about other major purchases? I mean, is, is that same thing holding true? I, I mean, I could see that happening right now. You say, you know what? I was thinking of getting a new car this year, but if rates are going up, maybe I should do it now and lock in uh, as opposed to waiting until June or July or something like this. And I know that's 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 pretty gray area right now, too, because of the automotive market and, and supply shortages and things of this nature. Uh, but I, I see your point. I could see a, a rush happening right now where people are saying, I want to get in here uh, before things start to slow down a little bit. Yeah, you know, I, I think you will see, you know, uh, car purchases get accelerated. Uh, and just yeah, everything is like I, I booked a trip with my wife in 2020 that got canceled. It was a nice three night getaway for a 10 year anniversary to Jamaica and it cost us four grand. Tried to rebook it in 2021, got canceled again. My $4,000 credit, I had to add on another $1,000 to get that trip. So now it was five grand. I looked into it again. It's up to six grand now. So I'll tell you one thing. That's a heck of a lot more than 5% inflation. <laughs> so it's, it, it's, it's interesting to see you know, what people are going to pay and, and what true inflation will be for certain things. Because I tell you, I think it's a heck of a lot more than 5% in certain areas. Well, I could hardly wait to hear that conversation at the kitchen table with you and your wife tonight. How about a 20th anniversary <laughs> trip, honey? Uh, when things are a little more stable. It's We're like, going skating, honey. We're going skating. Yeah, good luck with that. Uh, Brian, always great to have you on here. You bottom line stuff for people, and that's always important when situations like this arise. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Bill. You betcha. Take care. Brian Hogman, of course, principal owner of Mission 35 Mortgages. And uh, the book is interesting, too, How to Get Mortgage Free Really Effing Fast. Uh, the book on how to pay off your mortgage in Canada with 10 simple steps. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.